You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning, we will be looking at Psalm 26. Psalm 26. So I invite you to turn there with me if you have a copy of God's Word. It begins on page 459 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. We've been looking as I have opportunity to preach through these Psalms, going one by one in order. And this great first collection, the first book of Psalms, goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. This this focus here, though, on all of these has been ultimately on the kingship of God. God caring for his people. We saw last time in Psalm 25, that that is this wonderful statement of faith. David trusting in the Lord, remembering his promises. The king is guiding him and forgiving, giving him eternal blessing, even though life is full of difficulties. And we enter a series of Psalms that have many of these same themes resonating throughout. So we come to Psalm 26 this morning. Let us now... Pay heed to the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Third grade was a mostly good year for me. I had a wonderful family, had great friends. I did well in school. I was having fun learning the piano. I was just getting into baseball. But I'm always going to wince a little bit when I think of my third grade year because it was the year that I was sent to the principal's office. I really was a good kid, I think. You can ask Jacob afterwards and see what he says. I think I was obedient and respectful. I wanted to, to obey authority. There's one occasion when my teacher thought I was doing something that was belittling someone else in the class, but I had no idea what she was talking about. So she looked at me and and I wouldn't apologize for what I did because my response was, what did I do? And for that response, she sent me straight down the hall to Mr. Moon's office. And there, still unsure of what I did, I proceeded to cry for hour after hour. It hurts to be falsely accused, even a a third grader, not knowing what I did, feeling like I was being falsely accused. We've all felt that since. 
You've been falsely accused. You did this. No, I didn't. We see it in the news. Celebrity accuses another celebrity of something. That celebrity accuses the other one of something. There's some false accusation going on somewhere. They go to trial over it. Nothing's more debilitating for us than knowing something, somebody thinks something false about me. Even worse, that they're spreading it to others. And this seems to be exactly what David was dealing with in this psalm. As he writes the psalm, it seems to be there's a false accusation against him, false rumors and lies being spread about him. And here in this moment of difficulty, he calls upon God to judge the disputes. Now, a word about the structure of this psalm. The psalms are highly structured and scholars like to debate what's going on and why they're structured in such a way. But this one seems rather clear to me. And a structure, I'll say, is, is like a good barbecue sandwich. There are three elements to a good barbecue sandwich, right? You've got your bread, you've got the sauce, and you've got the meat in the middle. And, and the structure here is very similar to that. We've got three elements. You've got the, the bun on the, the outer sides, and you've got the barbecue sauce because you put it on top and the bottom of, of the meat. And then you have the meat in the middle, these three elements. And that's exactly how this psalm is structured. We've got the centerpiece, and we have almost a mirror at the top and the bottom. So we'll work through these three elements, really three subjects of our psalm as we come to the centerpiece of it. And these three elements of our psalm are this. First is God, the top and the bottom. Then evildoers, the layers coming in. And then the center of this psalm is worship. God, evildoers, and worship. So these are our three points this morning as we look at Psalm 26, but we'll see overall that God is the judge and he vindicates even the greatest sinner to, who comes to him through Christ. So let's look at these three subjects that David lays out for us and, and spends time reflecting on in the Psalms. So let's first look to God. And this is verse, verses one through three. And then at the end, 11 and 12, he focuses attention on God and what God is doing in the midst of his circumstances. He begins the Psalm with this word, Vindicate. Vindicate means to clear me from accusations, to prove that I'm right, that the, the accusations are false. He's calling God to judge. He's appealing to the highest court in the dispute. So he turns to God, vindicate me. And David here, he knows the answer to this really important question. And beginning the, the psalm in this way indicates he knows the answer. And the question is this. Whose court is most important? Whose opinion of me is most important? Is, the, is it the court of public opinion? Is it the court of family opinion? Or is, the court, is it the court of God's throne room? What matters ultimately? What matters most? Is it what other people think? Or is it what God thinks about me? How often are we left without a human court to appeal to? Reputations are damaged with false accusations. You don't get the promotion because somebody said something slightly off color about you, something false. Family members want nothing to do with you after hearing a lie. Long-term friends turn their back because they think they know something about you, but it turns out it's false. It happens all the time. It happens more than we think. And so the question is, who do we appeal to? Where's our ultimate comfort in a moment such as that? And David knows he can take his case to God. 
where it ultimately matters what God thinks. God's judgment on the matter. I don't even think he's asking God to change his circumstances. Of course, that would be wonderful if God did. But he's coming to God because he understands what God's view of the matter is, is what's most important. He's asking that he would be vindicated, that he would be innocent in the court that matters most, the courtroom of heaven. And so he calls upon God, vindicate me, judge my situation. You are my hope here. And he, but he has confidence, he expresses in the next line. For I have walked in my integrity. His confidence that he will win his case. Now, there's an immediate problem as we read this verse. Is David expressing a belief that he's perfect? Is he saying, I'm perfect, I, I'm full of integrity, I know I've never sinned and thus judge me accordingly? I don't think that's how we ought to read this. I think the most natural reading of this is to understand that David's talking about this narrow case, the case where there's a falsehood. David knows he hasn't done whatever he's being accused of doing. He knows in this instance, he's full of integrity. He's done what is right. What they're saying is wrong. And we see elsewhere, David is more than willing. He's ready to confess his sins. Just in the last Psalm, in Psalm 25, he mentioned several times how he's a sinner. And so if David was a sinner in this case, no doubt he would have confessed it. He would have made note of it. He would have repented of it. So I don't think David is saying, I'm perfect. I've done it all right. But I think he's saying in this narrow case, these false accusations are true, truly false. Father, I'm innocent. You know what I've done. So he's confident because he knows the facts and he knows God is a righteous judge. The world is full of unrighteous judges. We're all unrighteous judges of one another, but God who knows what is true will only judge righteously. If David is innocent, he will say, yes, you are innocent. And David knows that he's in the clear. And what a wonderful thing it is to have a clear conscience, right? What a wonderful thing it is to be accused and to say, no, I didn't do that, but not have, not to, to, to have a, a, a conscience marred with, well, did I do that? Maybe I did slightly sin against them, but to know I've been faithful in this. What a gift that is. It's a valuable thing. And I love the word he uses here. Speaking of, his, of what he's done, being right, he uses integrity. I've walked in my integrity. This word is a sense of completeness. Without deception, I'm not two-faced. I'm not one thing to one person, another thing to another person. With, with innocence, there's a, a whole that's, that's being held together. A good example of this was recently talking with one of our deacons and he made a comment to me and I asked him if I could share this with you and he said yes. Uh, but I think it describes this kind of integrity so well. He said, I want to be the same person at home and at work where a person from work would say as I parent my children, yep, that's my boss. And my children would say in a review meeting with an employee, yep, that's my dad. This is an integrated whole of a lifestyle. I'm not one person here and another person there. This is something that we should strive for in all of our life. We're called to live in integrity in all of our life, not being two-faced, not being Jekyll and Hyde in different places and talking to different people. When you're around your friends, would your spouse recognize you? When you're at work, would your children recognize you? We're called to be men and women of integrity. So David trusts God's judgment, knowing in this case, he was innocent. He was full of integrity. 
because God has not allowed him to waver. At the end of verse one, he says, I've, I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. When we read this, it's interesting. Is, is the wavering speaking about my trust? I think the King James helps us understand a little bit better. King James translation says this, I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide or waver or fall. So it's not that my trust is unwavering in God. David's not saying, look, I have perfect trust in you, therefore save me. No, he's saying, I have trust in you. Maybe it's an imperfect trust. It's a trust that may itself waver, but I know who doesn't waver. It's the God who's faithful to his people. God will not waver. I trust in you because you have not ever wavered. You have not allowed me to slip. So David, looking at the present, looking at the past, he's calling upon God, looking at God saying, you know the situation. I appeal to your courtroom. And in verse two, he, he moves from the present and the past. He moves to the future. He looks, looks down the road and he says, prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind. I think what he's doing here, he's asking for God's ongoing interrogation and purifying of him. He's asking God, you know my heart. You know all the parts of my heart. Try me, test me, find whatever uncleanness that is in there and purge it out of me. That's what this word test means. It's like to refine with fire. Test me, refine me, make me more pure. As I walk down this road, I want to be full of integrity in every part of my life. And I love the ground for him making this request to God to prove and test and try. Why? Verse three, for, or you can say, because your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I think this is probably my favorite part of this whole psalm. He says, the steadfast love of God is before his eyes. What is David on a daily basis wanting to put before him? What is he looking at? What is he mulling on during the day? What does he want his mind to think about? What mindset does he want to intentionally put on every moment of every day? As he walks around the palace, is he checking social media on his smartphone, preoccupied with what others are saying and doing? Is that what's before his eyes? Or is he watching hours of Netflix every day just to numb the pain of feeling that life is purposeless? Is that what he's looking at? Is he checking his news websites every five minutes to make sure he hasn't missed anything of importance? What's before his eyes? Your steadfast love. Your steadfast love is before my eyes. This is what I want to think on. This is what I want to meditate upon. This is what I want to be at the forefront of my thinking. The redeeming, the loving, the gracious God who rescues and saves is on his mind. He's looking upon it. And that is what makes us feel truly alive because it inflames our heart and our mind. It, it, it helps us know that there's meaning in this world. That there's a God that is greater than anything we can imagine. This God communes with us. This God, as he said in Psalm 25, who is our friend. That's what he puts in front of his mind. That's the way that out of that truth, he operates in the world because I know your steadfast love. Therefore, I can expose my heart. Therefore, I can ask you to refine me and every bit of sin within me, get rid of. Why? Because I love your steadfast love. I love you. What you have done for me is so incredible. But this is hard. I caught myself. After writing this part of the sermon, I 
locked up my office and went out to my car. And what did I do? Immediately got turned on a podcast, started checking Twitter. What is on our minds? It is difficult. We must, we must be intentional with what are we doing? What do we think about what matters? And of course, there are all kinds of worldly concerns. Yes, of course, all kinds of things are important to think about. But what drives us? What is guiding my thinking? Are we mindlessly wanting to be entertained, allowing the world to pull us along in its current? Or are we intentionally setting our mind on Christ? Think about how this would change your life as, your mi- as we set our minds on these things. There's a real tangible joy that comes out of putting your mind on Christ, about understanding a steadfast love on meditating upon it. That's what David is saying here. Think about how it would help you in your battle with sin and temptation to think of the love of God for you, this steadfast love, this covenantal love, how that would help you resist sin. Sin looks a whole lot less compelling when we have the love of God staring us in the face. If you meditate on what he's done for you, your desire to do what is good and right grows even more. Think about how this would help you grow in love for others. As you know your own struggles and God's grace for you, wouldn't it lead you to, to greater compassion for others and care for others? The willing to, willingness to, to lay down your own life for the sake of someone else? You could be a better listener, be less irritable. You could demonstrate the love that you've received. David walks in God's faithfulness, he says in this verse. I look at your steadfast love. This is what is before my eyes. This is my mindset. This is the center of my reality. This is more important than anything else. I walk in your faithfulness, which you've done. And I set my eyes on your steadfast love. So he looks to the future, growing in this way, growing and in, in, in dying to sin, putting it to death. And then we've walked through the, the, the ver- first three verses, the beginning of the psalm. He comes back at verses 11 and 12, circling back to these same themes, reiterating his, his desire to walk in integrity. He calls there for God to redeem him, for God to be gracious to him. And I think this is an indication that he knows he's not perfect again. He's not claiming perfection here but he knows his weakness and frailty and sin. And I love how the psalm ends with great confidence because God has placed him on level ground. Despite all of this crashing down on him, despite all the false accusations, he's on level ground. He's confident, he's sure because he knows what the greatest priorities are. He knows God's promises. Are we content like this kind of man? a very contented man. Again, this huge issue is upon him, a a deep and pressing concern he has. But he looks to Christ. He looks to the promises of God, leading him to great contentment. Are we content to say, I trust the Lord? Are we content to say that in a hard situation? Are we looking to him? Understanding our sin, are we putting his steadfast love ever before our eyes? Oh, there's great hope of joy and contentment in the salvation that we've been given as we set our mind on Christ, as David has reflected on God to begin and to end this psalm.
But he moves from reflecting on God, the focus now changes to evildoers. So not at the outer sections anymore, we're in just a little bit, the barbecue section, barbecue sauce section, if you will, of our psalm, where he considers evildoers, verses four and five, verses nine and 10. And I think it sounds strange to our ears the way he talks about evildoers, the frequency that David talks about evildoers. Now, maybe these are the ones who are falsely accusing him. Maybe he's setting it up to be a foil for moving on to the next section. I I don't know. But he's acknowledging that there are those who don't seek the Lord, those who are not innocent in what's happening. He doesn't want to get wrapped up in, in their aims, in their desires. He's distancing himself from these kinds of things. And when he says, I will not sit with the wicked, of course, he's not saying, I don't talk to wicked people. I don't talk to unbelievers. I don't, it's not, I'm not going to have them into my house. It's not what he's saying at all, but he's saying, I'm not going to sit as a companion, as one who listens, as one who wants to learn and glean from them about my spiritual condition, about things that are ultimate. Because of course, we are called to love and care for all people. But David's saying, I'm not like them fundamentally. Fundamentally, there's a different aim that they have that I have. And then he prays in verses eight and nine, knowing that God's gonna judge these evildoers for their sin, he's asking that God would not judge his sin, that God would be gracious to him, not God would not sweep him away with the evildoers. But I think it's important to mention there's no evildoer or no sinner, as he calls him, later on. There's no evildoer, there's no sinner. And it's again, not, not just talking about somebody who sins, because we all sin, but it's talking about somebody who is defined by their sin, somebody who has not been redeemed from their sin, somebody who walks in the darkness of their sin apart from Christ. There's no evildoer, there's no sinner who's too far gone from the mercy of God. There's no evildoer and no sinner who cannot call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Because they are all called to worship the same God, all called to trust in him and his provision for salvation. Because any evildoer, any sinner who looks to Christ will, like David, be able to say, I bless the Lord. We'll receive the great gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins and all of this. But this is a reminder for all of us, but particularly those apart from Christ. This This is a call for you to look to Christ to come to Christ. You don't need to continue in your ways, but come to a savior who redeems and saves. These evildoers though, they set the stage for the core, the center of this Psalm that David concludes, doesn't conclude on, but this becomes the the meat, the center for us to, to meditate upon and consider. And that is the topic of worship. Verses six, through eight. I'll read them once more. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. For David, there is a source of great strength and great comfort, and that is worship. That is coming back to the tabernacle that he worshiped in. Because coming to the tabernacle reminded him of all of these realities that he's been saying, of the steadfast love of God, of his mercy, of his justice. He mentioned some tactile realities about worship. He talks about washing his hands 
and innocence. As the, the, the priests would wash their hands to ceremonially purify themselves. He talks about walking around the altar with the, the sights and the smells of the animals burning, this sacrifice for him before the Lord. But David indicates that worship is not a spectator sport. Worship's not something you just go to watch. It's not just something that other people do and you're here for the party. David's fully engaged. He says he proclaims thanksgiving aloud. He's an active participant in worship. He's proclaiming thanksgiving to God as we all do, as we pray and as we sing. He's telling all of his wondrous deeds. The Lord is at work in his life. The Lord has done these wonderful things to redeem him, but God is continuing to walk with him and he wants to tell people of it. He wants to tell everyone how thankful he is and what God has done for him. And we have opportunities to do that together as well, particularly in the evening. Come and share your thanksgivings before our service and we'll pray for them together corporately. Your requests as well, but share them in the congregation as David is doing. What a delight it is that all of God's people can rejoice with us. We can say thanks to God. What an encouragement it is to other people when we say, look what the Lord has done for me. David participates. David is... He, he, he is a part of worship actively to celebrate what God has done. And in verse eight, he tells us that he loves worship. He loves it. I love the habitation of your house. Of course, he's not just talking about the tabernacle here. He's talking about, I love worshiping you. I love going to your house where you have made your glory known to us, where you dwell with us. I love this. As every parent knows, you can't command your children to have fun on family vacation, right? You can't say, this will be a fun family moment. I've tried and it doesn't work. <laughs> and so it would, be, it would do no good for me to stand up and say, you need to love this moment right now. That's not how we, we, we grow in, in our love for worship. It's not simply a command we heed, although yes, it is. But we can say, why does David love worship? Why does David love going to God's house? We see a couple indications just in this psalm. Because the realities, first, the realities of God are made clear to him in worship. He's talked about all kinds of things in this psalm. The steadfast love of God. The invitation from God to, to trust in him. God's righteous judgment. How God redeems his graciousness, how he sets us on level ground, how he receives us as children. We need to be reminded of these things. We need to set them on our mind. We need to look at them. And if we're not looking at them at worship, likely we aren't looking at them anywhere else. So David loves to come to worship, to be reminded of these realities of God, these realities of the gospel are made clear yet again. And this leads him to desire to sing, to praise God with all of the people. What a joy it is to be together. But I think he also loves going to worship, loves worship, because here the difficulties of life are explained in light of sin and evil. See, because this difficulty of life, of, of, feeling, of not knowing what to do with these false accusations swirling, these difficulties of life are explained. Explained this way. These difficulties are not how the world was meant to be. It's a result of sin. It's a result of being in a fallen world. But yet there is a redeemer. And we can set our eyes on him and look forward to that 
new heavens and new earth that he will bring a place where righteousness dwells. No more false accusations, no more suffering, righteousness instead. And so as he comes to worship, these difficulties in life, are made, there, there's some sense made of them. The difficulties are explained to him. Why do we love worship? What other reasons are there for us to love coming into God's presence? I've got many, many, many things we could say. I'll try to hold my tongue and not go as far as we could. But I want to remind us of why do we love worship? And I hope this draws us deeper into communion with God as we understand even more how how wonderful it is to even be here in his house with his people. Why do we love worship? Because it's rest from ordinary demands. This is the Lord's day. It's a rest from having to do all those other things that are demanded of us six days a week. We love worship because it fulfills a longing that has been building for a week, a longing to come back to God's people. It fulfills that longing. We're here. We can rest. We can rejoice. We love worship because it brings our troubles and cares to the throne of grace. We don't leave our difficulties out in the parking lot and come in now as perfect, purified people that are having wonderful, easy lives. We don't do that. Yes, do we turn our phone off? Yes. Do we, do we minimize distractions? Certainly. But when we come in, it's not like we forget life is difficult, but we come here to the throne of grace in the midst of life being difficult, in the midst of being falsely accused or that diagnosis you received or the news about your children, whatever it is, you come here to the throne of grace to make sense of it in light of the gospel. So we bring our troubles and cares to the throne of grace. We love worship because we get to look at life in light of eternity. All of life, it's so easy to get caught up in every moment of what's going on. But here we get to take a step back and say, whoa, what really matters? What's the big picture here? Like Paul said in our passage we read earlier from Corinthians, slight and momentary affliction is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. There's something far more glorious than you can ever understand that is coming. We're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded that I am forgiven in Christ. We're reminded of what Jesus Christ did, that we would be reconciled to God. Oh, do we not love to hear that yet again? Because we forget. We need it over and over. We love worship because we love to hear God's people sing, do we not? It is an encouragement to us. We get to pray with and for God's people. When we're praying, it's not just a pastor standing up here and praying on behalf of all of us. No, this is all of us praying together. We're uniting our hearts together, going before the Lord, praying with and for one another. We also get to come because we get to be prayed for. Prayed for by all of God's people together in one place. We love worship because here we hear God speak. We come to this place because we want to hear God speak. And if, and if you're confused, is God speaking today? Yes, God still speaks through his word to his people. God is at work. This, this word is alive. This is not the word of some man that was made up. This is God himself who is speaking to his people. So we hear God speak personally We love worship because we can receive tangible reminders of God's grace as we come to the supper. God knows our frailty. We come to the supper as he reminds us in the bread and the cup 
of his body and his blood that was shed for us, given for us, that we would be reconciled to God. We get to be near God in his covenantal, redemptive works and presence. God is at work in this place. God is at work in our midst. And we get to be near that and draw near to him. And we get to hear God's blessing of his benediction upon me. God's word proclaimed among, over his people, naming you as his people, blessing you to go in peace. It's an incredible, wonderful thing that God gives us. And we're reminded that there is more to life than what we see. And isn't that what this Psalm calls us to? To remember life is more than this moment, than this accusation and this difficulty. There's more to life than you can see. We don't see the spiritual realm of all the angels who are gathered here with us, worshiping God, who are eager to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. We don't see all of these things. We don't see eternity. We don't know what's coming in the future. The Psalm tells us, what are you putting before your eyes? What is most important? What will sustain you until the end? The steadfast love of God. That's why David concludes this psalm. With all of these things, reflecting on God, reflecting on the evildoers, centering this on worship and the joy that worship is. That's why he concludes in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. He comes back to this central idea. There is nothing like blessing the Lord with God's people. In the midst of heartache, in the midst of horrors of life, There is no safer place to be, no better place to be for us than in the midst of God's people, to proclaim his name, to be reminded that God still is, and God is still working. God will not leave you or forsake you. God is faithful. Yes, left to our devices, we are evildoers. We are destined to be eternally swept away, but calling upon this Redeemer, trusting in him, walking in integrity. What other, what other people think, what they say is irrelevant. What they do is irrelevant because we can know what the Lord thinks of us. In the courtroom of heaven, because of Jesus Christ, you have been declared righteous. You are his. And there's no one on this earth that can take that away from you. Your, his steadfast love has been set upon you. I still really don't know what happened to me in third grade. I really still legitimately don't know why I was sent to the principal's office. It doesn't make sense to me, but it was a good lesson. What ultimately matters? What my teacher thinks of me, what my principal thinks of me, what my parents think of me. Not to say these things aren't important, What ultimately matters is what David brought us to in this psalm. Your courtroom, your throne room, oh God. God, vindicate me. And even if I was perfectly innocent on that fateful day in third grade, I wasn't innocent every day. And how can I account for those sins before God? Only by pleading his mercy and only by looking to Christ. I pray that all of us would do that, looking to him more and more, setting our eyes on that steadfast love of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful that you have shown us your steadfast love. And there's nothing we can do 
to lose it because you have set it upon us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would grow in us faith to trust in you, to look to you, to rejoice in you, to love you more and to love worshiping you more. Oh, what a joy it is, how it's formative and shapes us. And we pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we seek your glory and your honor above all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.